Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you're joining me today. I have a great interview for you with a very popular thought leader named Whitney Johnson. And Whitney was named one of the world's 50 most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50 in 2017. She's the author of the best-selling book, Build an A-Team, and the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. So that's two popular books there. Through her writing, speaking, consulting, and coaching, Whitney works with leaders to retain their top talent, build an A-team, and to help them earn the gold star, be a boss, people love. Whitney formerly was the co-founder of the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard's Clayton Christensen, where they invested in and led the $8 million seed round for Korea's Kupang, currently valued at $5 billion. She was involved in the fund formation, capital raising, and development of the fund strategy. She's formerly an award-winning Wall Street analyst, and we talk about that in the interview. She was an institutional investor ranked equity research analyst for eight consecutive years, and Whitney is frequently contributing to Harvard Business Review. She has over one point six million followers on LinkedIn and was named one of LinkedIn's top voices to the influencer category for 2018. And her LinkedIn course, The Fundamentals of Entrepreneurship, has one million views. So she has a huge following. She's done a lot of impressive work, long career on Wall Street before she got into uh, executive coaching, working with women, working on innovation, and talking about this idea of disrupting yourself. And in this interview with Whitney, we dig into this idea of disrupting yourself yourself, how people tend to operate on S-curves, and uh, when they get to the top of their game, it can sometimes become unfulfilling and how they need to then disrupt themselves and find a new role, a new way, a new challenge. And we talk about how talent development professionals can help leaders disrupt themselves and help look out for people who need those challenges and help them get past the fear of taking on a new challenge. And Whitney shares some examples of how she has done that. We also talk about her proudest moments of moving up as an investment banker, her biggest failure, 
And we talk about some of the challenges going on in Telen Velman and the trends that she is watching as well. This is an interview that you are really going to enjoy, I think. So without further ado, here is my interview with Whitney Johnson. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Hey, Whitney, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Thank you, Andy. I'm happy to be here. So great to have you on. We got connected by the great Liz Weissman, who I had on this podcast a few weeks back, uh, a really popular episode, and of course, best-selling author of Multipliers and a fantastic conversation. And I asked her who else she would recommend to come on the show, and you were at the top of the list. So it is an honor to have you on. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. And I thank you, Liz, for recommending me. Yeah, so cool. And, you know, of course, I've been looking you up and I read your bio before we got started. And you have so many great accomplishments, two books, a ton of great content out there, 1.6 million followers on LinkedIn. Amazing. Um, One of the things that stood out to me is that you were a uh, charter member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. And I was wondering, what was that like? And and what did that do for you? Because that's his pretty huge honor. Yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, so Marshall, um, just to give you a quick background, Marshall is basically the world's number one leadership coach. He's coached over 150 CEOs. He just turned 70 years old. And a couple of years ago, he decided he was going to do this legacy project, which basically was he's going to teach 15 coaches everything he knows. So he put out this call for applications and there were... And I so I applied and I was selected as one of the original 15, so the charter member, but there was so much demand. He's like, maybe we'll do 25. And then it, it, then it exploded to 100. So now it's the MG100, uh, Marshall Goals with 100 coaches. And it is really an honor and amazing um, to be able to work with him and to learn from him. In terms of, I guess, what have I gotten from it? One of the things that's been really interesting is right now... I'm working with him um, and another one of the MG100 colleagues, Tasha Yurik, on a coaching assignment with the CEO. And that's been really interesting to be able to mentor and, and apprentice under him. So that's been very helpful. And I think the other thing that I've really valued about him is that he's one of those people that doesn't just say, hey, you need to go take a seat at the table. He like sits down at the table and makes you sit down at the table next to him. And so I really value and appreciate that him. And I think the third thing I would say is he's really good about making sure that he tells you that you need to be charging more than you are. He's very good at knowing what his value is and making sure the people around him are cognizant of, of what their value is in the mar- marketplace as well. Yeah, that's so important and interesting that you mentioned that. I'm in, you know, running my own consulting business. I'm in a couple of groups for entrepreneurs. And that's a theme that comes up a lot because a lot of people, especially if you get into coaching, you love what you do. Sales is not a natural thing. And 
people oftentimes sell themselves short, right? They don't realize how valuable their strengths are. They think if I do this, anybody can do it. And it's not true, right? You have a very unique gift and strength that's probably worth a lot of money to other people. And unless you have someone kind of telling you like, hey, you need to be charging more for this, you oftentimes won't and we sell ourselves short. Right. And what's so interesting about that, you, you said a couple of things that I thought were fascinating. Is this idea of if it's easy for us, we don't value it. And that happens mm-hmm. all the time is that whatever we do best, it's so reflexive for us, it's practically invisible. And so we say to ourselves, how could this possibly be valuable? It's easy for me. And not recognizing that it might be of tremendous value to someone else. The other thing I think we also don't realize is that we sometimes look at, okay, well, what do other people charge on an hourly basis as opposed mm-hmm. to saying, what's going to be the ROI for this person yes. if, if they invest in coaching for themselves and looking at the value that you're creating for that person and then setting a price so that they still get the ROI, but then you feel like the work that you're doing is valued. So it's an, it's an interesting way to flip it, but I think really important to do. Oh, totally. And, and you know, most coaching, I think, is oftentimes still on an hourly basis, but the hourly pricing model is so, I think obsolete and broken for both sides. Because if I'm charging you on an hourly basis, my incentive is to work as many hours as possible when you probably just want the job done, right? And so wouldn't you rather price it based on the value you're getting or the ROI? So it's cool to hear that he was pushing you on that. So one thing you might actually find interesting, I don't know if you know this, but one of the things that Marshall does is he actually has a pay for performance model. Mm. He charges now he charges people astronomical amounts like $250,000. So that's Marshall. He is the absolute gold standard. But he basically says to them, if you get better as measured by your peers, then you pay me. If you do not get better, you pay me zero. So that shows tremendous confidence in his ability. I think it's fascinating. Um, and, and it really then puts the onus on the person who's hiring him to get better because if they don't have, end up having to pay him, then they're like, well, I didn't pay him. Why didn't you pay him? Because I didn't get better. Yeah. Then it's like embarrassing. Yeah. It's embarrassing. You, if you're willing to put up that kind of money, you definitely want the performance you want to improve. And $250,000 sounds like a lot of money, but for some people... If they're getting that much value, they can make a big difference. And from what I understand, I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins. I think he gets at least a million dollars a year for coaching with people. So you can always go up. There's always there's, you don't have oh, to go down. Well, okay, so so Marshall, uh, on that basis, he's not the gold standard. He's a bargain compared to Tony Robbins. That's, That's right. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, speaking of people, you know, maybe underselling themselves or not valuing their skills or maybe not charging as much, I. This may be a little bit risky thing to say because I'm I am a man, but I think this might be more common for women sometimes. And I understand you started a group forty women over forty to watch, and yeah. I was wondering what was the impetus behind that, and and what does that group look like? Yeah, so it's interesting. So we did it for five years. That has ended, but the impetus behind that was. So Christina Valletta, this was her idea. She said, you know, I have this idea for 40 women over 40 to wash. And again, this is like six or seven years ago now. And I was like, that's a great idea. You know, I hope that you do the list and I hope I'm on the list when you do it. And then I thought about someone, I'm like, that's a great idea. I want to do this with you. And so the idea for us was that you, for women in particular, for a variety of reasons, um, women's careers don't tend to take off as early as men's do. I think in part because men, the research says, are judged on potential. Women are on track record, so it takes a while for women to develop the track record. There's also the instance of oftentimes women are trying to juggle 
family and, and, and work in a way that men aren't as well. And also there's a piece of research that says that in order to move up the ladder, people look at the relationship that men have with their peers as well as how well they manage up. Mm. They, or women look at peers managing up and how do they manage down. Hmm. So what that means is that women have more stakeholders that they have to manage. And so in order to get that critical mass, that confluence of things makes it so that women start to move into their sweet spot of their career a little bit later. And so we wanted to recognize women who were over 40, who right at that age where you potentially start becoming a little bit invisible because you're not quite as cute as you were when you were 20 or 30. We wanted to say, hey, we see you and the, the contributions you're making are valuable and we hope that you will keep doing it because we, from our perspective, think you're just now getting your stride and there's a lot more to come. So so the impetus was a number of reasons, but those are, those are a couple of, of reasons why. I love that. And of course, the value, uh, you know, it shouldn't matter how cute you are, what you look like anyway, it should be the work that you've put out there and the value you've created for whatever organization you're involved with. Going back to that third piece, I want to make sure I understand that correctly. So men are often judged based on not only performance, but the way they manage up and women are judged more on the way they're managing down. So men are judged on sideways and up. Mm -hmm. Women are judged on sideways up and down. Okay. means is let's say there's um, all the junior people in an organization. So all the secretaries of the senior person who historically have been women, a man can move up and not have any of those junior people like that man. The woman, if those junior people don't like her, she's sunk. So she's got more time to not only cultivate relationships sideways and up, but also down. Also on the attractive thing, you'll find this interesting. There was another study done around venture capital and people being able to raise money for their businesses. And what they yeah. think is that men were significantly more likely to be in a blind test, significantly more likely to be able to raise money than women. And this was not only for men, but also for women. So women are also biased against women. Mm, I've heard that. Yeah. But if the men were attracted, then they were even more likely to get investment dollars. So <laughs> It does matter. That's why they do things like blind, you know, of have people play the violin or the cello or whatever without right. so that they can really judge them on their merits alone because we all are, you know, we're, we're, yeah. we do things and we make judgments based on what we see. That's truly, we, we, as, as much as we try to remove it, we all have implicit biases and uh, the reference you were making, I don't know all the details, but it was to people getting hired to play on the symphony, right? And there was a, a huge bias. Men were getting hired much more often than women to play certain instruments. And so they started having them play behind a curtain and then yes. judging them based on that. And then the number of the percentage of women getting hired went way up, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's so cool. So you wrote a book called uh, Disrupt Yourself. And uh, I lo- a few years ago, and I love the concept of this. So can you tell me, tell us about the book. What was the impetus for that? And what was the book all about? Yeah. So I used to work on Wall Street. I was an equity analyst on Wall Street, putting buy and sells on stocks. And this was back in the early 2000s, like 2003, 2004. And I came across this book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. And when I read that book, it was just, wow, it was eye-opening because what it did is I was looking at stocks in Latin America in particular and seeing that over and over again, the wireless stocks like America Mobile, they just kept beating my estimates. Like 
every time. And whereas the wireline companies, you know, they were kind of steady as she goes. And when I read the book, Disrupt Yourself, I was like, wow, this explains, or not, not sorry, Disrupt Yourself, the Innovators. Yeah, you, had, you hadn't written it yet. I hadn't you read, read the, the Innovators a little yeah, this explains what's happening. Like this really makes sense. But yeah. while I was doing that, then I had this insight, this kernel of an idea, I should say, when I was still on Wall Street is this theory just wasn't about products. It was also about people. And so about a year later, I quit my job. I decided to become an entrepreneur. I ended up connecting with Clayton Christensen, who wrote mm-hmm. The Innovator's Dilemma. And um, co-founded an investment fund with him and his son to invest in stock. Wow publicly traded companies and early stage companies that we thought were disruptive. And as I was doing that work, I just, you know, getting steeped in these ideas, I just was like, I've got to chase this down. This disruption idea, it is really about people. This fundamental unit of disruption is the individual. And so I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review, and then that ended up, I started speaking about it, and then that turned into a book. And so the premise is, Companies don't disrupt, people do. And so I codified this framework of personal disruption. It's a seven-point framework that basically tells you, okay, how do you know when it's time to disrupt yourself? And then once you make the decision to do that, here are the seven steps or accelerants that will allow you to do it systematically and effectively. Well, maybe we won't, we probably won't have time to go into all the seven steps, but how do people know when they need to disrupt themselves? Why do people need to disrupt themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, one of the things that we look at is the S-curve. The S-curve is popularized by Ian Rogers in 1962. And so at its simplest, every single person's on an S-curve, including you, and you start at the bottom of the curve and you don't know what you're doing. And then the growth accelerates into the steep part. And then you get very, very good at what you're doing. You finally get to the top of that S-curve. And what that means once you get to the top is you know exactly what you're doing, but your growth slows down. You start from a neuroscience perspective chunking, you're no longer getting that dopamine, you start to get bored. Once you get to the top of that curve, it's time for you to disrupt yourself. Okay. So things are going really well and you recognize that. And that's oftentimes when people get a little bit complacent or less fulfilled and they're really not as happy because they don't have that challenge anymore. Things have gotten easier. And a lot of times people will stay there and become less and less happy. I've found and also learning from the great Tony Robbins, I've been to his couple of sessions. He talks about this and how you know most fulfillment comes from challenge and you know going through that discomfort. And so you're saying we get to that point, it's a good idea to now disrupt ourselves, try something new that would be less comfortable for us. And so we have that new learning curve that we or that new S curve that we can climb. That's right. That's exactly right. So you look at it and you think, okay, I'm going to get to the top of this curve, and you think, yay, I'm here. But that yep. plateau, because of what's going on in your brain can quickly become a precipice. And so it's this idea of you disrupt yourself over and over again. You learn, you leap, and then you repeat. And when you do that, you're getting that dopamine. And so you're happy. And so we disrupt ourselves because disrupting ourselves actually makes us happy. Cool. Now, have you seen or coached anybody through this process where this has worked really well for people? I'd love to hear an example. Yeah, yeah. So it's been really fun. So I I coached the CEO of, of one organization and coached him in helping someone do it. So I'll I'll talk you through what that looks like. So at their company, so it's a a company called Western Governors or Western Governors University Organization, University Mm. WGU. They've got over 100,000 students, an online university. And they had um, their chief marketing officer. He was basically at the top of the learning curve. He'd been doing it for about 10 years and, and was ready to do... He was ready to do something new, but he didn't even quite know it yet. So they're like looking at it thinking, huh, this is like 
we know something needs to shift. And so he felt it, the CEO felt it, but like, what do you do with that? That's kind of an awkward conversation, but then you're able to say, okay, well, this is an S curve. This is the learning curve or the top of the curve. We've now got this latent innovative capacity. So there's this reframe of like, no, we don't want to push you off the curve. We just want you to jump to the bottom of a new curve. (laughs) Right. They had that conversation. He went from being the CMO to the head of WGU Advancement, and he is doing this fantastic job, really innovative, really entrepreneurial, because they understand understood this paradigm of you get to the top of the curve, you jump to the bottom of the new one. And so that's really exciting to watch that play out. That's so cool. And I think if I think about this, one of the things that probably holds people back, and maybe you see this, is there's got to be a lot of fear, right? I know how to do this. I'm comfortable with this. If I go try that over there, it might not work and I might fail and people might judge me for that. So how do you coach people through that? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that you know that's true for 90% of the people. I think that we have in our mind's eye that there are people out there who like to sort of, you know, bungee jump or parachute mm-hmm. off curves. And I think that's probably 10% of the population. I think yeah. 90% of us are like, yeah, not so much. I think I want to stay right on top of this learning curve. And so one of the things that I do to coach people through this is, first of all, remind them that if it's scary and lonely, you're on the right path because that's what disruption is. Like by definition, you're playing where no one's is playing. I also remind people of the loss aversion theory. So that's Amos uh, Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. This idea is that we're more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain 2.25 times to be exact. And so instead of when you get to the top of the curve thinking, well, if I jump off this curve and do something new, it's going to be so wonderful. We're actually more able to motivate ourselves by saying, what bad thing is going to happen to me if I try to stay exactly where right, I am? Right, And right. I actually use this. And I, I've seen it in my own, like a very simple example, a couple of, probably about a year ago, I was, I had this webinar that I needed to prepare for and I wasn't preparing and I was like, I'm going to do great. I'm going to do great. And I wasn't preparing. And afterwards it was kind of, bleh, kind of meh. And, and I said to my husband, yeah, it wasn't great. And he said to me, my husband's my truth teller. He says yeah. to me, don't you know by now that you motivated yourself by saying, if I don't prepare, it's going to be terrible. And you know what? That's what motivates me. And so I think, I think that's, that's what usually works with people is helping them understand the S curve and then recognizing if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen if you don't. That's interesting. And and the loss aversion thing is so important too, because there's such a huge psychology that people don't like giving up things they have versus acquiring new things. And I know a lot of people who are interested in making the jump into entrepreneurship like you and I have, but they don't want to give up that salary and that health insurance. And they always say things like, well, what if I fail? What if it doesn't work out? And they often forget that if you've built up these skills, you could probably always go back and get another job or go and find another option, right? Things will work out. Yeah. Especially if you do it within a year, right? There, there is sort of a a shelf life, but I think it's interesting. Andy is, I remember a few years ago, I was having a conversation with a fellow who, you know, he was at the top of the curve and he didn't, I I don't know that he was describing it that way, but he was at the top of the curve and he wouldn't jump. And I was like, and he's like, it's money. And I'm like, well, how much money do you have in the bank? He's like 10 years worth of savings. I'm like, it's not money. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something else going on. And yeah. usually, so if it's not money and, and with lots of people, money is a real consideration, 
But in this particular case, it was an identity piece. And mm. having become an entrepreneur and me having become an entrepreneur, we know like you do lose your identity. Like I remember when I first left Merrill Lynch, I couldn't be like, hey, this is Whitney Johnson, Merrill Lynch. And people would pick right. up the phone. It's like, Whitney who? Yeah. And you have to really figure out how you're going to craft your brand and identity. And there is that loss and you have to figure out what you're going to do with that. But the good news is that you, I mean, you've gone out and built something very impressive and it's, it's a personal brand with all the content and things that you've done. And that's something that will always be with you that you cannot lose, whereas that company could always leave you behind. But I'm digressing here because this is not what this is about. I don't want to encourage all of my listeners to leave their jobs and, and go out on their own because it, it is a scary place. It's definitely not for everybody. But you also talked about coaching a lot of executives, working with big company executives. One other question I wanted to ask about that is, and it doesn't have to necessarily be related to this S-curve, but what's the most common challenge you see big company executives dealing with? You know, it's funny that you asked me that because we've, we've been circling around that topic. The big challenge that a lot of executives have is once they get someone to the top of a learning curve, what do they do? What do they do with them? And, and it can be... So for example, if I have this person on my team, they're at the top of the learning curve and they're fantastic there is the tendency on my part of like, I like you right where you are, where you do me the most good. And so there's this piece of entitlement that kicks in on my part of like, I don't want you to jump. Not recognizing that if I don't let you jump, you're going to leave or your your productivity is going to go way down. So I lose you anyway. So why wouldn't I just allow you to jump or help you jump and facilitate that jump so that you become an ambassador for me and for our organization? The other piece of that I think people are really struggling with is what do I do if I have someone on my on my team who's at the top of the curve and they like it there? What do I do then? And so some of you know a couple of suggestions there would be to have that conversation of you're on a learning curve. This is what it looks like. You're getting bored. This plateau could become a precipice. It's probably better if you jump than if you somehow get pushed off. Also reframe it and say to them, you know, you've got this amazing innovative capacity and we want that. We need it, but we can't get it unless we have you jump to a new curve. And then the third thing I would say is just let them know that when they do make this jump, because it is scary, you are going to have their back. You're going to frame expectations with your boss to say, this is a good decision. This makes sense for us to do. It's the right business. We've got the business case for it, but it's also the right developmental opportunity for this person. There's a 70% chance it will work, a 30% chance it won't. I'm just picking those numbers. But will you, my boss, have you know back me, have my back right. when we're giving this developmental opportunity to this person? So those are some things that I'm finding people, you know, when I present this material, that's always the question that comes up. What do I do with people at the top of the curve? Either because I don't want them to jump or they don't want to jump. And so there's just some suggestions of, of, of what you can do. Yeah. And it, again, going back to it, I mean, it, it's scary, but it's so fulfilling. It provides so much new experience. And it's something that I've been big on. I'm always jumping and trying new things. And I think a lot of it goes back to reading the book Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck, which convinced me that I need to be seeking you know, hard things, challenges, because that's how I'm going to learn and grow, not things that are easy. And uh, so, and by the way, I do this a lot theoretically, but also about a month ago, my wife and I jumped out of an airplane for our 15th wedding anniversary. So I'm all about jumping, <laughs> whether it's in the career or even quite literally jumping out of a plane. Wow. And uh, wow. it was a lot of fun. Nicely done. And no yeah. children? You don't have children, I'm assuming. We, uh-oh, that tells me you might judge me if I tell you that, yes, we do have two children. We have children. Are they still young? 
<laughs> they're still young. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause a couple of years, the reason I asked is a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, I'm going to go skydiving. Even yeah. though it totally terrifies me. Right. And our children were old enough. I think they were like early teen and they're like, no, 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 we don't want you to do it. So I thought that was interesting to me. Good for you that you did it. That, I, I love that. That's very meta. That is a very meta example. Thank you. you. I think Andy, I do think that this ability to disrupt yourself, to jump to new S curves, to jump out phones. I think it's, it's a muscle like anything else. I yeah. really, it's something that you can get better at. You can practice at and develop that skill. I agree. All right. Let's talk about your other book that you wrote uh, about the, is it the, the A-Team? Yeah. Uh-huh. So what was the impetus behind that? And, and what is that book about? Yeah. So Build an A-Team is really a companion to Disrupt Yourself. So one of the things that happened after I wrote Disrupt Yourself is I had a lot of senior leaders say to me, uh, yeah, you are not coming to talk to my company. And I'm definitely not letting anybody read your book or listen to your podcast because they'll all leave. And I was like, wait, no, 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 no. You're completely missing the point. Unless of course you don't want to grow as a company. This is a mechanism. This, this framework of personal disruption is a mechanism for building high growth individuals, for people who know how to learn, leave and repeat. And, and if you help them do this, they're not going to leave. They're going to actually help you and your organization go where you want to go. So, so build an A team was me saying, here's what this looks like for you as a leader. We're all on a learning curve, including you, your organization is a collection of those learning curves and you build a high performing team by optimizing those curves with 70% of your people in the sweet spot. 15% at the low end, 15% of the high end. And here's how you manage people depending on where they are on the curve. You manage people at the low end like this. You manage people in the sweet spot like this and manage people at the high end like this. And I just gave you a couple of suggestions. So it's a companion to disrupt yourselves, the mechanism and then build an A teams, how you execute this S curve strategy for as a, a leader, a talent development leader. So for someone in talent development that is acutely, uh, maybe not acutely aware, but they're, they're looking for these opportunities, right? I want to help my talent grow. I want to find these opportunities for people to disrupt themselves, to figure out where they are on a certain S-curve and then put them on a new one. What are some things that people should be looking out for to find the people that are nearing the top and, and look for people and, and help them disrupt their careers? Yeah. So I think the first step is is just to introduce this S-curve framework. I mean, it was very interesting not too long ago, we introduced it to a group of senior executives and they were like, oh, okay, I get this. Now I can, this becomes a tool for me to sit down for the people who work for me and be able to say, okay, you're on a learning curve. I'm on a learning curve. Where do you think you are? Here's where I think you are. And if, for example, you're on the steep part of the curve, then what do we know? We need. We know that we need to make sure we're giving you stretch assignments and we're also appreciating you because everything is going well and it seems to be like, they're doing great. I'll leave them be. Like, no, we need to appreciate you. If we know that you're at the top of the curve, here's some things that we need you to do while you're waiting to jump. And once it's time for you to jump, here's what it needs to look like. And so it gives you this tool, this artifact that kind of takes the emotion out of it a little bit to have a conversation to develop talent and to really help people assess where they are on the curve. And then by the way, it can also be used as a strategy planning tool because as you aggregate up all that data, what you can do is you can say, all right, well, how much of our workforce is at the high end of the learning curve? How much? If I've got more than 20 or 30% of my people all at the high end of the learning curve, what does that tell me? Well, it tells me that people are 
probably getting a little bit bored and I, I'll, I'm either going to have this massive exodus or I've got a bunch of people who are going to get a little bit complacent and I've got to figure out a way to refresh and reinvigorate them because if they're not innovating, then we as a company aren't innovating. So innovating, not intubating. So those are some suggestions of how you can start to in- engage with it. Yeah. And as we recorded this in 2019, innovation, that topic is becoming more and more important. It's a bigger concern, a big concern for uh, CEOs across the Fortune 1000 and beyond. And I talk about this all the time. Innovation is not about an R&D group, you know, off in one building like it has been in the past. It's about the culture that you create. And that means identifying where people are on that spectrum, how people think about themselves and their work and their group, and are they willing to take risks? Are they willing to try new things? And if you're in a company that's encouraging these things for people to disrupt themselves, change their roles and their careers, managers are allowing their people to move and try different things and not hoarding talent like they often do in some organizations. Those are diminishers, Liz Weissman has taught us, right? Talent hoarders then your company is more likely to be more innovative and more likely to be around for a while. But the companies that are not are being disrupted. And the average age uh, or tenure of a company in the Fortune 500 company or Fortune 500 now is 19 years. It's way shorter than it used to be because companies are getting disrupted so often. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. We're also providing tons of great content on a weekly basis. In fact, we recently launched a great webinar series that has been going on weekly with content such as creating a culture of multipliers, gender equity, Liz Weissman's webinar on helping rid the world of bad bosses. We have a new webinar from Brent Snow on decision-making. We have a webinar on multipliers and how to use multipliers during troubled times, calming the storm. We have a webinar from our partner, Julie Winkle Giulioni on developing in place how to continue your growth during remote working. And a webinar from Paul Middleton on the secret sauce for learning in the flow of work plus many more, just head to our website at advantageperformance.com. Click on free resources and you'll find the link to webinars and all of our other insights and resources there. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So I want to shift a little bit to some of my more standard questions here, Whitney, and ask you, uh, what's been your greatest accomplishment in your career so far? What's your proudest moment? I think the thing I'm most proud of, well, there are two. One is that I'm really proud of the fact that I graduated from college in music. And when I moved to New York, I started as a secretary working for a stockbroker, knew nothing about Wall Street, knew nothing, knew no one, had no confidence. I was a female and I was able to move from being a secretary to an investment banker and just have the career that I've had. So I'm really proud of that. I think the other secondarily is that when I was in banking, there was a merger, big shakeup, my boss gets fired and I basically got shoved into equity research and then ended up being an award-winning equity analyst after kind of getting pushed into that. It, it turned out to be a career maker for me. So I'm, I'm really, you know, music major turns out to be a really good financial analyst and stock picker. I'm, I'm actually really proud of that as well. 
Oh, that is so cool. And what you, I mean, going from the bottom to the top, impressive for anyone. But as you mentioned, being a woman, I mean, investment banking is completely a man's world or it has been in the past. And so I can only imagine the challenges that you went through to get to where you were. And so it's a huge accomplishment. And I also want to point out that that opportunity of getting shoved into this area and then becoming an award-winning equity was an analyst based on your boss getting fired, because I'm you know, so familiar, I refer back often to Liz Weissman's work with multipliers. She called that an accidental multiplier moment when you're forced to take on new tasks, really disrupt yourself because your boss disappears, whether it's maternity leave or getting fired. And now you have to step up and, and try new things, which is pretty right. cool. Exactly. Exactly. What's been your biggest failure or mistake and what did you learn from it? So one that kind of haunts me, I don't know that it's my biggest failure, but it's certainly one that haunts me is when I was, and this this goes back to Liz's work, but when I was early on in investment banking, there was a young woman who was incredibly talented. She was straight out of undergrad. She was a few years younger than me. She'd studied engineering, super smart, was able to just grasp everything super quickly. And I remember um, I was so threatened by her and her capability that I really... She did not report to me, but it threatened sort of my very existence. I was not supportive of her. And I I don't know that that's my greatest mistake, but it certainly haunts me of how I... Mm. But it was also a reminder to me that if we don't feel psychologically safe in a situation, we're going to do all sorts of things that we don't think is our better nature or who we want to be. But when we don't feel safe, we behave in very bad bad, bad's not quite the word, but ways that are certainly against our better natures. Oh, totally. When you look at all the diminisher behaviors and multipliers, especially micromanaging, being a tyrant, those types of things, it's all fear-based, right? It's all out of fear that we are not going to perform well and we're going to lose our jobs. And I think, you know, when I talk to a lot of people about leadership and I think about my own experience in the corporate world, one of the things that holds people back from really empowering their employees and coaching them and and challenging them and giving them the freedom is that, well, what if they outperform me? And then they realize that they don't need me anymore. And I can imagine I'm making an assumption here for you being a woman in the man's world that you might also have been thinking that, you know, hey, I'm the overachiever woman here. What are you you doing coming in on my turf? I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, the thing that makes me think that one of the lessons learned is I think, you know, yes, I want a, you know, better nature kind of thing. But I also think that it's a reminder to me is that when we go into a work situation, we're hiring a boss and we're hiring a work situation. This is the jobs to be done theory. And we need to be very aware of like, are we going to into a situation where there's competitive risk or market risk? Competitive risk means we're going to be competing for resources of some kind or market risk where we've got this opportunity to create and build something. And so I think that's a lesson to me is that we need to look for situations where we're going to feel like we can build something and we're not competing for our very survival. Yeah. And that psychological safety you mentioned is so important too. And going back to what I said about innovation, that's a critical component of building an innovative culture. Do people feel safe to try new things and to empower and challenge their people uh, versus having to protect their jobs and their roles and their projects and their employees and that, that sort of thing? It's a big dichotomy. Related to that, what do you think is the biggest challenge as you've worked with talent development professionals and big companies in general? What do you think is the biggest challenge in talent development today? 
Uh, this is going to sound very rudimentary, but I think a really big challenge is giving people feedback. You know, we look at it, we all know that if we're going to get better faster, we need feedback. And it's just been interesting because I've been administering a lot of 360s. I'm coaching a whole executive team at a company and giving people feedback and saying, okay, now you need to have the conversations and have additional feedback and really open up those channels of communication so people feel like they can tell you what's working, what isn't. And it's just astonishing to me how bad we are at giving people feedback. And I think it's really holding up our development because if we can't get that information, we can't improve. And yet we don't give it because it terrifies us to give that feedback. And so I actually think it's kind of a basic thing, but I do think it's really holding up development of talent generally. Yeah, just people not giving enough feedback and being open to receiving feedback on both ways, right. I would imagine, it's, right? It's both, it's both ways, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is, there, is there one... Uh, I know there's there's a lot of work to be done here, but there's, is there one piece of advice you give to talent professionals to help their creative culture of feedback? Yeah, there is actually. So one thing that I've discovered is that, again, like disrupting yourself, giving feedback is a muscle. And so one of the things that I strongly encourage people to do is on day one, start giving feedback. And I'm, feedback in this instance is a euphemism for something that they're not doing well. On day one, because on day one, they're going to make a mistake. They're going to do something that you don't, think is up to where it needs to be. And so, but on day one, you're like, well, it's their first day. I won't say anything. And so day two, well, it's their second day. I won't say anything. And then what happens is you get into this pattern of not saying anything. And then, then you don't know how to say anything because you haven't said anything. And so if you on day one can establish this pattern of, Hey, that sentence or that word, it was spelled incorrectly. Can you go back and fix this? Then they know, okay, so guess what? I just got feedback. And importantly, you did not kill me dead when you gave me that feedback. So now I feel like... I'm still alive. I'm still in my job. I'm still alive. So what it does is for you, the giver of that feedback, you are developing that muscle. And for the person who is receiving it, they now have this sense of, they feel bounded. Like they know what it feels like when they get positive. They know what it feels like when they get negative and they're alive in both instances so they can live another day. And this is about getting better. And so that's my one piece of advice is on day one, once you identify the thing that they need to improve is to say it and call it. And so that you are in the practice of giving it, they are the practice of receiving it. What I've noticed with the people that I work with, the ones that I have done that, we have a much better working relationship than the people who I've been like, oh no, I'll be nice then it's hard because mm-hmm. then maybe I don't like. And if I do now bring it up, they're like, but I thought you liked me. Well, I do like you, but they think then it starts to be personal. So day one. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then you start harboring resentment towards that person because of the things they're doing or not doing. And you're not giving feedback and you have these unmet expectations. Whole road we can do, go down there. I love that that advice. What's the top trend that you're seeing or tracking or excited about in, in talent development today? Yeah. So something that I'm seeing a lot of, and this is top trend in talent development, I think is that more and more people are hiring coaches. This is not about fixing people. It is about people getting better, much faster. And um, coaches are um, a vehicle for doing that. I know I'm talking my own book, but what we are seeing is there's a lot of demand for coaching. A tool that I'm really liking, and this goes to the, you know, sort of technology to do it. We're using a platform called Coach Logics. No, we're not invested in it. I have no financial interest, but we are using that platform and we're finding it to be very useful in, in being able to manage and scale the coaching assignments that we're doing. 
That's cool. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of more of that as well. And the availability of coaching at scale. And I have a couple different offerings there as well that if my clients are, or if anybody's interested in bringing that in, in addition to the one you mentioned, uh, we have a company called BTS Coach that is uh, coaching at scale. And then uh, also uh, Kevin Cruz, who's been on this podcast, has a company called LeadX, which is AI coaching powered by IBM Watson. Pretty cool way to scale coaching for people in your organization as well. Yeah. Whitney, has there, uh, what's a book that you often recommend or has made a big impact for you uh, besides your own and besides multipliers, which you've already mentioned? Yeah, I'm not sure I would mention my own. That's funny that you said that. Um, so Some I'm, people are really excited to promote themselves. <laughs> well, no, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, but I won't mention my own book. So a book that I, this has nothing to do with talent development, but it's a book that I've read recently that I have referred to several times in terms of ROI. It's super high. It's by Chris Voss. He's a former FBI negotiator and he wrote Never Split the Difference. Incredibly useful. I've used it in like five different situations different sort of negotiation situations and incredibly valuable book. I, I highly recommend it because you have it. There you go. I've got it right here. It's a good book. There are, and... there are all sorts of situations where we think, oh, well, you know, hostage negotiation, I'm not being held hostage, but things get held yeah. hostage all the time. Your friendship with someone, your relationship with someone else, it, your reputation, whatever it is, um, a house that you're trying to buy. So um, I- Your children I, I, hold us hostage all the time. Yes, they do. <laughs> So I haven't tried it with my children yet. I'll have to do that. But yeah, I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. I had the opportunity to ask Chris a couple of questions on a group call I was on once. And uh, the stuff, his knowledge around this stuff is just absolutely amazing. I have to go back to that book and maybe try to get him on the podcast at some point. Last question for you, Whitney, for anyone working in talent development that is looking for a way to accelerate their career, get better with managing the talent, helping their people move up. We've talked a lot about the S-curve and those are the things. What's one more piece of advice you would give them? So what I would say is if you're looking to help other people get better, focus on really getting yourself better. It's interesting. Like Just practice your craft. So if you want other people to do a really good job of giving feedback, because feedback is the way that you're going to get better, then really focus on making sure that you are giving feedback. So I would bring it always back to you. Um, if you really want to be a great talent developer, really focus on how you're developing the talent and the people who work with you. Walk your talk as much as possible because that is going to send, that's going to send the strongest message, the most powerful message for anybody who's within your sphere. Yeah, walk the walk, set a good example. And it's almost like the advice we hear to put your, your own oxygen mask on first before you start putting it on others. Is like, learn the things, practice. I can't tell you how many times I've run programs at companies and the HR talent development person who brought me in is in the back of the room just doing email and not going through it. And I'm like, you could benefit from this too. You know, Learn the skills right. and then you know what you're bringing to your people. So just a little bit of a soapbox right there. But I, I agree with you. Walk the walk, practice the stuff, learn it, and then you're more likely to be able to give that advice to other people. Whitney, for anybody listening that wants to get in touch with you, follow you, maybe work with you, what's the best, where's the best place for them to go? Um, the easiest way to get in touch with me is you can email me at wj at whitneyjohnson.com. You can go to my website, whitneyjohnson.com, listen to our podcast. That gives you a great introduction to our work and, and what we're doing and how we're thinking. And so those are the two best ways to reach out. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about the podcast. And what is your podcast called? Called Disrupt Yourself. Disrupt Yourself. Love it. I'm going to add that to my queue. So uh, whitneyjohnson.com. Check out the podcast, Disrupt Yourself. Whitney, this has been fantastic. It's been really valuable for me. I am so grateful that you took the time to come on today. I know you got a lot going on and I know it's been valuable for our listeners as well. So thank you again for coming on the Talent Development Hot Seat. 
Thank you for having me, Andy. All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.